Good morning, New Hope family. I'm glad to be back with you. I last week had a little bit of a virus that seems to be hitting the rest of the state of Michigan. And <laughs> gratefully, Michael and the worship team stepped up and did a great job leading through worship and prayer last week. So, yeah. Always thankful for that and uh, worship this morning. Like, wow, I could go home right now. That was fabulous. I'm going to ask you to go with me in the Old Testament to the book of Ruth, if you would. Maybe have it electronically or hard copy. If you're new to New Hope, you'll find that we also put the verses up on the screen. We're going to dump, jump into that in just a moment. Two things to pull to your attention. Um, coming up next Saturday, if you've been at New Hope for a while and you're interested in becoming a member of the church, next Saturday is the Discovery class. And I understand there's 20, 25 people that are already signed up, and then people caught me after the nine who said, hey, I'm coming there too. If you're interested, uh, it starts at 9 o'clock in the morning, finishes at 3 in the afternoon. Uh, the elders, along with myself and Jeff, will be there, and we teach through the, the history, the core values, the finances, all the details related to what it takes to become a member and the things that you would want to know. So if you're interested in that, contact the office this week and let them know that you're going to be coming, and we'll get you on the list. Um, the second thing is, perhaps you saw the slide that was rotating earlier, but there's an intentional marriage date night coming up in the first weekend in March, and that's with Dr. Randy Carlson. And oh, there's the image. Can you see the family resemblance? Uh, Randy and I are cousins. And he'll be here uh, March 1st. We haven't done an event like that, and uh, uh, I don't know if we've ever done an event like that. So Randy's coming. There's uh, already 150 people signed up for it. If you're interested, Lori and I are going to be part of it. No matter what stage of uh, relationship you're in, maybe dating or in marriage, you might be interested in being part of that on that night. So let us know. You can sign up on our website and uh, indicate that you're interested in being part of it. Well, we, before we jump into the book of Ruth, would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you right now asking that you would really help us to adjust our hearts to yours. We try and set aside the busyness of this last week, and we're also already anticipating what's coming this week. And it's so hard to find that place where we put ourselves in a position to be able to hear from you. Help us to shut down the distractions and align our thinking with your thinking. I pray, Father, specifically for those who know this story so well. Uh, that we would be tempted to dismiss it. But rather, God, I ask that you'd put us in the edge of our seats to learn new things from you. So engage us now through the power of your Holy Spirit. Teach us that we might speak into the lives of others who are precious to you and help us to adapt our life to your standards. We pray for that in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. So I'm going to take you to the book of Ruth, but before I take you to the book of Ruth, I'm going to take you to the New Testament. You don't have to turn there. Um, it's no secret that when you open up the New Testament, that the very first book is Matthew. And when you turn to the very first thing written in the very first book, in the very first chapter, what you find in Matthew is a genealogy. Let me show you an example of a portion of the genealogy that's listed in Matthew chapter 1. It starts off by saying Salmon, not salmon, the salmon you eat, but Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now there's an interesting name. We learned about her in the book of Joshua. The father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and right out of the gate in that very first book, in the very first chapter, you find two fascinating females that are mentioned. And we're not going to get into Rahab's story because we did that several months back when we were working through Joshua's story. But we're going to get into Ruth's story this morning, and they're both mentioned in that very fame, same first sentence. And you'll find, if you're not familiar with the study of Ruth, that this is one of the more beautiful accounts of grace in the entire Bible. Now, remarkably, that the book of Ruth is named for Ruth is actually quite remarkable for this reason. There's very few women in the Old Testament who get a book named after them. And in this case, she's not even Jewish. She's non-Jew, so you have a, a, a non-Israelite who gets a book named after them, 
And her story is about a crisis of a family and into whom she marries. And so we find a very interesting story that's captured here. Now, for you and I, we've been working through the entire Old Testament. If you're new to New Hope, we're doing this study called E2E. Eternity to eternity. We started in the book of Genesis. We've made our way all the way through the book of Judges into the book of Ruth now. And what we've been seeing, especially in the book of Judges, is how things are getting darker and darker and darker. And progressively, you get to the point where you think all the light of righteousness has been extinguished from the land. There can't possibly be anybody left within that nation who belongs to God. And in the midst of that, along comes Ruth. And where judges revealed the apostasy of Israel and the walking away from God, this book highlights the genuine spiritual faithfulness during the exact same period of time. The book of Ruth actually intersperses and is inserted into the period of the judges. We know that from the very first verse. Look with me on the screen, and it says, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was famine in the land. In other words, before the kings ruled, while the judges are still governing, and we don't know exactly when, along comes the story of Ruth. That's a very lengthy period of time, 350 years during the time of the judges. So where it occurs in that timeline, we don't know, but the real key to understanding the power of this particular story, very short story, is that Ruth was a Moabite. And she's from Moab, which is east of Israel, on the other side of the Jordan River, east of the Dead Sea, in a very desert, barren area. That'll come out in just a moment. Let's dive in and pick it up in verse 1. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, "'And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephratites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The names of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they lived there about ten years." Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children, meaning her adult children, her adult sons, and her husband. Now, if you're new to the Bible, what's really crucial to understand about this is that element of being from Moab. And Moab is so crucial because it plays a role in the story. Moabites are descended from Lot, and if you're not familiar with Lot, you're familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot is the survivor of Sodom. When God destroys the city, Lot makes it out of the city with his two daughters. And then he has a son, and his son he names Moab, and his son is also his grandson, if you get my meaning. So he has this issue of incest in his family, and Moab, his son, who is also his grandson, is the product of incest. And so they start out with really bad circumstances, but that's not the biggest issue. The, the greater issue is that the offspring of Moab have completely rejected the one true God. They don't follow Yahweh whatsoever. So they start out with these bad circumstances and gets worse because Moab begins worshiping Kamash, and Kamash is a stone god. And the people of the Philistine territory also worship these stone gods, and what they do when they worship these stone gods is they make sacrifices. Well, Kamash, the stone god that they worship, they bring to him sacrifices, child sacrifices, baby, infant sacrifices. So because of these bad beginnings, and because of the rejection of God, and because of the idolatry in the nation, and because of the child sacrifices that are going on, because of all of that, God curses the Moabites. So verse 3 of Deuteronomy chapter 23 actually says this, God put it in writing, no Ammonite nor Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord, none of their descendants, even to the tenth generation." Now catch this. Because of the national decisions, the government itself has actually endorsed them sacrificing children. 
because that's going on in the nation, God comes right out and says, no individual will be allowed to enter into the assembly, which means no Moabite can be joined to God. Shut out from the assembly actually means shut out from redemption. Now, that's pretty significant because Ruth is a Moabite. She's married to an Israelite who died, but she's still from the genealogy of the Moabites, and that means she's under a curse. So we take that into the next section of the story. Verse 6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, the speaking of Naomi. And Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her new husband, if you will. She wants them to get remarried. So Naomi's husband, Elimelech, is dead. Her two adult sons are dead. She's in a foreign country. She doesn't want to be there. She wants to go back to her home country, to Israel. She has no sustenance whatsoever, and a widow at this period of time was destitute unless the husband left something to them. So no chance of earning any income, no chance of survival, and so she's saying to her daughters-in-law, with me there is no future. You won't get anything. You might as well go and get remarried. So there's some back and forth disagreement between the daughters-in-law, and ultimately one of them leaves, but Ruth insists on staying with Naomi. Watch. Verse 14, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, meaning a departure, she's ready to leave, but Ruth clung to her. Keep going, verse 15, and she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you, for where you go, I will go. She's really, really loyal, but she's still under the curse. She's still a Moabite who separated from God. Now what? Well, there's this really fabulous aspect in the Old Testament in which God speaks about these individuals who are separated from Him. And if I can take you forward to one of the prophetic books, one of the major prophets, I'm going to show you something in the book of Isaiah that Isaiah wrote down, but he wrote it specifically because God told him to. Look with me on the screen at Isaiah 56. And you find this great prophet Isaiah making a declaration. And he says, thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh. So he's not coming out and saying, hey, Isaiah said. He's coming out and saying, no, God said this, and you better pay attention. Now, now link that with what Isaiah just wrote, thus says the Lord, and link that with what he says in verse 3. Thus says the Lord. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from His people. Now, just to put that into modern language, even though someone is on the outside because of their past, because of their history, God's saying, don't let that one think that they cannot be joined to the Lord. And then in Isaiah 56, He goes on to clarify. Look with me on the screen at verse 6. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Now, pause there for a second. In other words, someone has said, I align myself with God, and there's going to be fruit in my life to prove that I've aligned myself with God. So we've got recognition here that this person hasn't just said it, they're actually measuring it out in their life. They love the name of the Lord. They're ministering to the Lord. They're, in other words, they're doing things that God wants them to do. They're His servants, and they keep from profaning things, and they hold fast to His covenant. Keep going, verse 7. Even those, even those who are on the outside, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar." Now, that's pretty good news, isn't it? Isn't that good news if you're on the outside looking in? Like, I've never been able to be part of something like that. How do I get right with God? Well, that's pretty good news that Isaiah just listed there. That's fantastic news. So what we're learning is this curse of God is in place unless, 
Unless the foreigner, the one on the outside who's separated from God, actually turns to God, and when that one joins themselves to the Lord, to use that language, God says, that one becomes acceptable to me. If there is measurable change, in other words, if there's fruit, life change has happened, and the behavior has been altered as a result of that decision. Now, take that with you into verse 15. Pick up where we left off. Then she, meaning Naomi, then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from you from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Isn't that beautiful, church? It's one of the more beautiful statements in Scripture. It's just so eloquently written out. And that sounds a great deal, like someone on the outside looking in saying, I want to be joined to the Lord. I, I don't want my past anymore. I want to put this thing with the Moabites behind me. Please, will you let me in? So we find a young lady who is not a rejecter of the one true God, but she's willing to, if you'll use Isaiah's language, she's willing to hold fast to the covenant. Verse 22. So Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth, the Moabitess, just pause there for a minute. How would you like that for your moniker? How would you like that for your dog tag hanging around your neck? You, you know what Moabites are now. You know what the culture is and how culture looks at them, and, and you've got this moniker hanging around you, and even the writers of Scripture say, yeah, she's a Moabitess. It like, sounds like a disease, doesn't it, the way they write it? So Ruth the Moabitess is tagging along with her. So Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem and the beginning, at the beginning of the barley harvest. So after 10 years, Naomi has come back home, but she's got this Moabite with her, and these two need support. They have to be able to survive. They're widows. They don't have any source of income whatsoever. And as far as culture is concerned at this period of time, Naomi is not favored by God anymore because not only has she lost her husband, which was taboo in that society, she's lost her sons, and she's got this Moabitess hanging around with her. This cursed woman is towing along. So verse 1, chapter 2, now Naomi had kinsmen of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Boaz, if you don't know the story, becomes a major character in this story. Verse 2, Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I might find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Let me just explain to you the, the gleaning of the field. Even if you think you know what it is, just hear this out. There's a law that Moses wrote in, in the laws, the, the codified laws of the nation that an individual who was very, very poor, we're talking destitute, would have the right to go and work the crops. So if you were a landowner, your responsibility when you grew crops was to leave the corners of your field unharvested, standing grain, if you will, so that those who were really destitute, those who were the beggars, would have a place to go and glean grain for themselves. Well, that's what's being described here. Gleaning means they, they can go behind the harvesters and pick up the kernels. Uh, if you've lived in the country or if you've driven in the country during harvest time, you've noticed the John Deere combines working their way through the field, and as they're harvesting the crops, sometimes a lot of the kernels fall on the ground, both wheat kernels and corn kernels. Well, these individuals go and they, they pick them up one at a time, and there's leftovers that they can gain for their use for food. So this would be like somebody, as you're driving down the highway, who's off in the ditch picking up pop cans, a dime at a time, trying to pick up enough so that they can buy food with it. This is really hard work. She's picking up a kernel at a time, and she's headed out to glean the fields, which is back-breaking work. It's a lot of toil for very, very little return. Verse 3, so she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, 
May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. Just pause for a second. What a great employer. How would you like to show up at the office in the morning and have your boss say to you, may the Lord be with you? Can you envision that in your workplace? And, and this guy's got that kind of an attitude where he speaks to his employees that way. May the Lord be with you. And so they immediately respond, may the Lord be with you too. But what you actually find is an insight into the kind of man that Boaz is. He's really kind to his employees. He's kind to everybody that he meets. And he shows it even in his greeting. Keep going with me. Verse 5, then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And just hang on for a sec. I think Ruth is somewhere around 25. I'll tell you how I came to that conclusion. I mentioned to you before that young women in the biblical era typically got married between the ages of 14 and maybe 17. So let's say she got married at 15 or 16, and she's married in Moab, and her husband dies after 10 years. So she's in her mid-20s, maybe 27, maybe 28. This is a young woman who's working this field. She's a really, really hard worker. She's very focused on what she's doing. And she ends up on Boaz's property of the family of Elimelech. She decided to follow the one true God. She put her past in her past, but she's still a Moabite, so she's still this destitute foreigner. And Boaz shows up on the scene and says, hey, who's the new employee? I don't recognize her. His worker says, well, she's a Moabite, actually. She's the one that tagged along with Ruth or with Naomi, and she said, can I please glean in the field? Now, church, what are the odds that out of all the fields in Israel, she would end up in Boaz's field? Are you a person who believes in luck, or do you believe in a sovereign God? Sovereign God would orchestrate all of the circumstances that this young woman who's working really hard, very focused on what she's doing, she somehow ends up in Boaz's field, there is no coincidence with God because chance is not a thing. Let's keep going. Verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded that the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. This is extraordinary, that this individual would even talk to her. This is a really successful businessman, man of great wealth, that he would even deign to speak to a beggar in the street, let alone a Moabite who's cursed, and then offer her protection, and then offer her provision. And he says, you stay right here where you're going to work safe. And there won't be any abuse because at this time in history, a gleaner working in the field, a female, was subject to rape. It was a very dangerous job. So he says, you stay right here where we can keep an eye on you and you will have all the privileges and all the rights of working my property. Verse 10, and she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Boaz replied to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. Pay very close attention to verse 12. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Love that. It's a fantastic insight on his part. See, it is so obvious that even to Boaz, who's a complete stranger to her, they don't know each other. It's very obvious to him that she has made a spiritual decision in her life. And so he said, you have come to Yahweh. You have come to the God who can spread his wings over you like an eagle protecting its young. You've come for protection. So watch Boaz's actions in response to what Ruth has decided to do. Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain. I guess that's really good. I'm thinking that's why they put that in there. 
And she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her. Don't chide her. Don't mock her because she's a Moabite. Don't take advantage of her. And by all means, keep your hands off from her. She's under my protection. What a really kind and really generous man. And then he says, let her go even where she's not supposed to go, right into the inventory of the harvest. She can go right in the warehouse if she wants, and she can pull out anything that she needs to pull out. And as if that's not enough, he says in verse 16, and you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. Now, that's not part of the deal. That's not part of what Moses wrote in the law. Yeah, you can leave crops standing in the corners of your field, but he never said that you've got to plant stuff for them. Well, they actually find that they're pulling stuff out of the inventory and leaving it behind for her. You talk about going up and beyond, that this man of great wealth would provide protection and provision for a Moabite, someone who's living in the most desperate of situations who comes from a very, very dark background. New Hope, is that not exactly the kind of behavior that Jesus expects of His followers? That we, we would be a shelter for the weary? That we would provide hope for the hopeless? It's exactly the model that you see here in Boaz. No wonder so many individuals, when they look at Boaz, say, that guy is very Christ-like. He's doing exactly the kind of things that Jesus would call us to do. Boaz is modeling this in a culture that has walked away from God, and yet he's the light on the hill saying, this is what it looks like if you're going to follow God. Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an epaph, which is about a bushel of barley. She took it up, she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left over after she was satisfied. Now, I'm, I'm going to read this with the enthusiasm I think Naomi has at this point. Verse 19, her mother-in-law then said to her, where did you glean today? Wow. And where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. This is Wow because the average gleaner in the field might be lucky if they could pull down a pound or two pounds of grain at the end of the day. she just come back with 50 pounds, 50 pounds of grain. Do you know what that means to someone who's starving to death? They have nothing whatsoever. We're so used to walking to our refrigerators and pulling out what we want, we forget what it is to live hand to mouth. And these individuals, these two women, they're absolutely destitute. They don't know where their next meal is coming from. And now, all of a sudden, they have 50 pounds of grain laying on the table in front of them. So th this is so remarkable to me because when she says, may he who blessed you, may this one who took notice of you be blessed, she says, first of all, where did you work? And Ruth's response is, a field by some guy by the name of Boaz. Now, at that point... Do you think Naomi said, wow, how lucky are we? Or do you think she said, wow, God arranged all of this? See, there's no luck. There's no chance involved. She couldn't respond by saying, how lucky are we? Because she knows exactly who orchestrated this. Watch in verse 20, the response. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of Yahweh. May he be blessed of the Lord, who, speaking of Yahweh, who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. In other words, God arranged this. God's watching out for us. Question, are they still poor? Absolutely. Are they still destitute? No question. Yet the attitude here is recognizing that God is meeting our needs. God has our back. He's a God of kindness. And she keeps going, verse 20. Naomi, again, Naomi said to her, the man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. 
And if you know the story, I know you know about a kinsman redeemer, but I'm going to ask you to hang with me as I explain this for the benefit of everybody, and maybe you're going to learn something new about a kinsman redeemer. It's a really important element that he's a close relative. When a woman is widowed in the biblical era, it is the responsibility of the family to watch out for that widow. But her family is gone. Her sons are gone. Her one daughter-in-law went back to the Moabites, but the other daughter-in-law has hung with her. It becomes the responsibility of the family to take a widow who is of childbearing age and bring them into the family as a bride so that the line of the one who deceased, the one who died, wouldn't actually die out. This is God's ancient form of like social security in some way because God's making sure that there won't be destitution among these widows. Well, Naomi knows this rule. She knows this law. It's called a leverat marriage. And Naomi's ready to play matchmaker because she knows these details and she thinks this has got great possibility. So verse 1 of chapter 3, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maid you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. And just pause right there. I know it's a really ancient custom, but hear me on this. This is what she's saying to her. Girl, I have a plan for you. I'm going to make something absolutely work for you. So notice what she tells her to do. She says, you need to take a shower because you really stink. All right? And, And then I want you to put on a little mascara and put on some perfume. And then, according to verse 3, put on your best dress. I'm not making this up. Read verse 3. She actually says, you you need to bathe, and then you need to put on some perfume, and you need to put on your best clothing. Now, I told you I thought she's probably around 25, maybe 27. Boaz is likely considerably older. And by that, I, I don't mean he's an old dog like me that it's ancient as dirt, but He's somewhere in his mid-40s. I know that because he's of the generation of her father-in-law that died. You know, people had babies really, really young at this age, and so likely he's at least 15 years older than her, maybe 20. So he's probably mid-40s, somewhere in that range. And that means according to the culture and the custom of the time, he will not ask her for a relationship. It's just not done. Ruth will have to make a subtle proposal, a proposition. I'm impressed with Boaz because even though this guy's very wealthy, very successful businessman, and he has lots of hired hands, he's still personally working the crops and he works hard. Verse 3, Naomi's still giving the instructions. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. They've harvested all the barley at that point, and they're having a celebration in the evening. And then she says, verse 4, it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, all that you say, I will do. Now, if you're thinking right now, that seems like a really bizarre custom. You're right. (laughs) It doesn't matter how much you know about the Bible. It does seem bizarre. It's a bizarre ancient custom. But remember, he's older by a generation, and Boaz will not approach her. He's been extraordinarily kind to her, but he will not initiate a proposal. But in this way, a woman could very gracefully ask to be brought under his protection. And so with no violation of her honor whatsoever, in the middle of the night, Boaz finds a beautiful young woman at his feet. I know you single guys right now are thinking, wow, that'd be fantastic. (laughs) It's an ancient custom. It's not going to happen, okay? But let's follow the story through and watch how this happens. Verse 7, when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. Remember, it's dark, can't see, no nightlights. He said, who are you? 
And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. Check this. So spread your covering over me. That's the proposal. For you are a close relative. You are a kinsman. Spread your covering over me is really bold because she's just said, marry me. Bring me under your protection. I want to be part of your household. Will you marry me? Now you think about how humble she had to be to do that, how bold she had to be to do that, but also how vulnerable she is in this moment. Because he could easily kick back and say, whoa, 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 wait, man, I was just giving you some grain. I had no idea it was going to lead to this. I wasn't really planning on marriage. But his response back to her is beautiful in verse 10. Then he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now, it is true, I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. If let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. What a kind-hearted, gentle man. What a contrast to Samson. Could you be 180 degrees different, more different than Samson? It makes you say to yourself, do I want to be a Boaz or do I want to be a Samson? Look at this guy, how kind he is. May you be blessed of the Lord. Now, the truth knows, the truth is he knows with her great reputation, standing in the city, and, and with her young age, with this great reputation, he knows she could easily have any young man. She could have her pick of the crop. But what I'm noticing here is she is so committed to the things of God and understands God's ways. She understands the Leverat marriage, and she's come forward to say, I want to conform to that. So with that thought in mind, let me just press down a little bit into verse 11 with you. Look, look with me on the screen at this. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. So in a really short time, she's gained this reputation as being very virtuous. How? What actions are producing fruit in her life to such a degree that everybody watching her, he said everybody in the city knows you're a virtuous woman. What has she done? She left her previous life, and she just wasn't saying it just to say it. She actually left her previous life. And she's clung to the things of God, and she's taken decisive action to do that, and it's identifiable in her decisions. She's now this very diligent worker who's taking great care of her mother-in-law, even though she doesn't have to do it. The fruit is obvious to everyone who's looking at her. Uh, this next thought is not even my own. I read it from a commentator, but he said in this commentary, look at the integrity of Boaz. This guy who has everything, all the wealth, all the land, and now he's got this beautiful young woman at his feet, and yet his integrity is so high that he's willing to say, time out. There's another relative that's closer than me. And, and that one qualifies actually before I do. And then he introduces a new word into our story because he says, if that one will redeem you when morning comes, I can't do anything about it. So he says in verse 13, but if I can, verse 13, I will redeem you as the Lord lives, as Yahweh lives. And there's that new word, redeem, agaal. And you see the word in your notes this morning. You see it on the screen. And it's definitely got this thought of buying someone back who's been taken captive, someone who's in a destitute situation. And we're not talking about buying a slave as much as we're talking about buying something that is very, very precious and bringing it into your life. And that's what he's stating here. So the action of redemption in the ancient world was this action by buying someone to make them your own. But to do that... Some things had to be true that could only be true of a kinsman redeemer. 
I'll show those to you in just a second. Let's keep going forward. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, and I think he's speaking to his employees at this point. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again, he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. And that's about 75 pounds of grain. So he loads her up with this big sack of grain, and she heads back to Naomi, who's in the city. And I'm thinking Naomi hasn't slept a wink all night. How about you? I'm guessing she stayed awake, like eyes wide open. What's going on with Ruth? And she comes through the door bright and early and says, so how'd it go? Tell me the goods. I want to know the details. And she drops a 75-pound pack of barley grain on the table, to which Ruth has to say, wow. I guess it went really, really well. So what Boaz has just done here is he made this very good faith gesture. He's saying, I'm definitely interested, and I'm as good as my word, and here's evidence of that. Now, while those two are talking back at whatever home they're living in at this point, Boaz separately is making his way into town. Nobody knows that they've been together. And he has a specific strategy in mind. He wants to find this guy who is the nearest relative. And so chapter 4 wraps up the story. It begins this way. Verse 1, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. Coincidence? I think not. So he said, Turn aside, friends. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took... Ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. I'm not sure Boaz saw that coming. But he's held out this ace card that he hasn't told this guy. Now just speculate with me for a moment. If Ruth and Naomi are present for these proceedings, and I'm thinking if they are, they're on the outskirts listening in because primarily men did business at the gates of the city. It's where legal transactions took place. Just imagine if she's a spectator to this, the roller coaster of emotions as things proceed. Her heart has to sink through the floor when the relative with the first rights actually says, yeah, I am Elimelech's closest relative and I will buy it. But he's focused on the land. And Boaz has held out his ace card for the final play. Now, remember what Boaz is doing? He's arranging a legal resolution. And some things must be true of a kinsman redeemer to be legal. Let me show you five things. In your notes also, see them on the screen. First of all, the redeemer must be a blood relation. The redeemer must be willing to redeem. The redeemer must have the ability to redeem. The Redeemer must be free, meaning a slave cannot buy another slave. The fifth one, the Redeemer must be in possession of the full price of redemption. Now hold that thought. I'll come back to it in a second. Verse 4, and he said, I will redeem it. See, he's thinking of the land. I, the it is the land. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi... You must also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. To which I'm thinking, this guy's going, whoa, 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 whoa. You might have mentioned that detail in the beginning. You should have told me about that. I didn't know that she was involved. And this close kinsman, quote, unquote, has a really feeble excuse. And I think it's because he knows she's a Moabite. And he says... I can't mess with my inheritance. Watch. Verse 6, the close relative said, I cannot redeem it, the land, for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Wait, you just said you could. Now you're saying you can't? And then he goes on to say, redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption. 
I'm out. Yeah, I'm, I'm not redeeming the Moabitess. I want the land, but if she's part of the deal, no thank you, you can have her. And I'm guessing if Ruth is watching as a spectator, when he declines, Ruth's heart has to be racing again. And there's this little exchange that takes place next because I guess changing sandals is kind of a deal at this time. Apparently that's a thing. Verse 8, so the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife. Now remember, none of them knows anything about the night before. None of them knows that she went and laid at his feet. Boaz purchases all of Naomi's land. She's going to have plenty of money for all of her late years, the years ahead of her. And I'm picturing Ruth and Naomi standing after this, back at the side, just kind of grinning with a smile they can't get off their face, thinking, oh, man, I was so bold. That was so dangerous what I did last night. I can't believe this has actually worked out. Her heart has to be racing. In verse 11, all the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephratah and become famous in Bethlehem. And it's got this very cool ending. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may His name became, become famous in Israel. May He also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to Him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi, so they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David, the king of Israel. How fabulous that a cursed Moabite who's living far from God becomes the great-grandmother of King David. And it's no secret when you open up the book of Matthew to the very first chapter, to the very first words written in the very first book, that there's a genealogy that reads this way, verse 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king, and you know where this is going if you drop down 28 generations. Now who's coming at the end of this genealogy? Look who arrives on the scene through Ruth. Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born who is called the Messiah. <laughs> the care and the preparation and the precision of our God to make a path for the arrival of Jesus is simply stunning. So if you're reading Matthew 1 and you think, man, those genealogies, they're really not all that important until you come to that woman by the name of Ruth and you say, how does a cursed Moabite a descendant of the mess coming out of Sodom. How does she get into the family of Jesus? Well, the answer is God provided a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. So Boaz points forward to this picture of this great kinsman redeemer who will arrive on the scene, the Lord Jesus who bought us out of a curse. When we were dirty and destitute and nobody would say that person has a chance, that great kinsman redeemer made us his own and blesses us for all generations. You want to put a bow tie on this? Ask yourself the question, how do I as a human who's come out of the mess of Eden and the rejection of God, how do I get into the family of Jesus? 
Just follow these five points with me about a kinsman redeemer to finish this. The kinsman redeemer must be a blood relation. Did not the Lord Jesus Christ have the exact same blood flowing through his veins that flows through your veins? The one who is the God-man, God who became man with the same red blood of humanity flowing through his veins, fully human, yet still the Lord God. The Redeemer must be willing to redeem. Scripture tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ willingly gave up his throne of glory. Philippians chapter 2, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on human flesh to be one of us. A third one, the Redeemer must have the ability to redeem. The Son of God who possesses all the power of heaven and all the capacity within him to be the Lamb of God became the holy, perfect blood sacrifice fulfilling all of the prophecies, meeting all the requirements of the law. I love the fourth one. The Redeemer must be free. In other words, the Redeemer can't be a slave because a slave can't free another slave. Jesus himself, among no one else ever in the history of mankind, as himself alone, knew no sin because he's born of a virgin. Therefore, he was never a slave to sin. Because he's born of a virgin, he doesn't have the sin gene, if you will. And therefore, he's never been a slave. And as a non-slave, he can free all of the slaves. And then comes the fifth one. The Redeemer must be in possession of the full price of redemption. We sit here today, we stand as humans under the exact same curse that Ruth did, completely separated from God, dirty with sin, helpless and destitute. But praise God for our kinsman redeemer, the one who possesses the perfect sacrifice in his blood. And the full price of our redemption is paid when you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, Jesus could say from the cross, it is finished because the price was paid in full. Amen? That's the beauty of the story. I'll be here after the service. If you'd like to connect, I'd be happy to talk with you. The prayer room's open if you need somebody to pray with. Right now, I'm going to pray for us that we would translate these things to action in our life. Let's pray together. Lord God, I'm so thankful for the way that you cause your word to come alive, and it's through the work of the Holy Spirit. So we thank you for clarity and for greater understanding than we might have had even 40 minutes ago, that you've shown us once again who we are to you and how precious we are, and that you would be the ultimate kinsman redeemer. Thank you for these truths and for the beauty of this story. I praise you that you caused them to write it down. So, God, we ask that you would take these things, translate them to action in our life, that we would speak into the lives of people who are precious to you that don't know that they can put their past in their past, but also remind us of who we are to you. We praise you for all of these things in the matchless name of our kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.